Hey, it's Chris Garlock. Today's show was one of our very earliest back in May 2018. It features labor historian Joe McCartan, who not only didn't tell me I was crazy to want to produce a labor history podcast, but has fully supported and participated since the very beginning. I hope you enjoy it. Here's the show. It's so disgusting. The one percent is just full of corruption. Now it's time for the 99. Cause we're drinking quarter waters and throwing sipping wine. They talk about strikes and union dues, but they have no answers for the real issues. Like a livable wage and enough sick days. A pension plan for the retirement age. Hi, and welcome to Labor History Today for the week of May 13th. I'm your host, Chris Garlock, and on today's show, co-host Joe McCartan discusses the 1938 U.S. Supreme Court's McKay decision, which permitted the permanent replacement of striking workers. Joe says this obscure decision was, in fact, a ticking time bomb that would go off to devastating effect more than 40 years later when Ronald Reagan fired striking air traffic controllers in 1981, giving employers across the country a green light for union busting. Chris Bangert drowns, even manages to sneak in baseball's first labor strike when the 1912 Detroit Tigers refused to play after team leader Ty Cobb was suspended. We've also got Joe Hauer on how Jerry Wirth built AFSME into one of the most powerful unions in America, Lane Windham on the first union of public library workers, and Saul Schneiderman and David Fernandez on the Matewan Massacre. Plus music from Brooklyn Cablevision workers and CWA members, Jaywalk Grimm and Shatoya Thomas Flemings. That's their We Are the Union you're hearing now. And the immortal Hazel Dickens. Enjoy the show. All right. Well, this uh, this is going to be an easy week for Joe. I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna wind up on this really easy slow pitch for uh, <laughs> Joe McCartan here. Um, Joe, what happened on May 16th, 1938? Okay, Chris. <laughs> thanks. Well, actually, May 16th is the 80th anniversary That's of. That's right. Yeah, one of the more important um, Supreme Court decisions regarding labor and workers' rights that that I bet not many people really know of. I had no idea until and, I saw it on this piece of paper. In <laughs> fact, at the time the decision came out, people didn't realize how important it was. It, it sort of sat like a time bomb. Uh, in American labor relations before it went off about 40 years after it was um, first announced. But what happened was in, in May of 1938, the Supreme Court issued a decision in a case called National Labor Relations Board versus McKay Radio. Uh, and the case had to, to do with um, a number of different uh, worker rights issues, but buried within it was an opinion that came out in the, the course of this decision that didn't really have to do with what was um, centrally um, at issue in the strike, but what was inserted into the decision in this regard really became enormously important. And what the decision said was that employers, in a case of an economic strike, when workers are demanding, say, a wage increase or something like that, have a right to replace those workers. 
while the strike's going on. Now, that became a hugely important decision because later in the 20th century, uh, strike breaking would return in a way that it hadn't been since before the New Deal uh, and before the Wagner Act, which had come about th three years earlier in 1935. So in 1938, the Supreme Court basically tells <coughs> private sector employers, if you're facing a strike by your workers because they're demanding changes uh, in their um, working conditions, pay and benefits, that will affect your bottom line. And if you can argue that this has a negative impact on your business, when they're on strike, you can bring in workers to run your business. So, uh, just two things, and it's a, yeah. it's a little bit into the weeds, uh, but there there are different kinds of strikes, right? Yeah. So there's an economic strike, which you just described. Right. What other kind of strike would there be? Well, there could be a strike over an unfair labor practice, say. For example? Say, firing a worker because of their union activity. Now, if workers were on strike against a violation of their rights under the Wagner Act, their rights to bargain collectively, say, uh, their rights not to be discriminated against because they were union members. The McKay decision didn't apply to those kind of strikes. But most strikes uh, ha are around economic issues, certainly since the, the Wagner Act time. So basically the Supreme Court said, in those cases you can replace a striker. Now, the Supreme Court said that, but Actually, at the time it said that things were already beginning to change in employer practice. Um, within a year of the decision, um, we would be entering uh, into the verge of World War II. Europe would erupt into war by September of 1939. Already in 1939, the U.S. defense industry was gearing up for our possible and eventual entry into the war. Unemployment was beginning to disappear, the great unemployment of the Depression. Um, the Wagner Act was in force. Workers' rights were being protected for the first time. And so you saw unionism on the rise. And then once we entered the war, the federal government strongly supported collective bargaining. So we entered a period when workers started to successfully organize unions. Employers, right after World War II, reacted to the post-World War II strikes far differently than they reacted to strikes after World War I. During World War I, workers formed unions too, but right after the war, employers broke those unions. Strikes were held in the coal industry, the steel industry. Employers dealt with them by bringing in strike breakers and breaking those strikes. They didn't do that after World War II, in part because the union movement was so thoroughly organized by then and for the most part, over the course of the late 40s and the 50s and even the 60s, it was pretty uncommon for an employer to try to break a strike. It, it would happen from time to time. And it's not that employers weren't tough negotiators. And it's not like they didn't try to keep their plants in some operation during strike. But to actually try to crush a union during a strike, not many employers tried to do that for a long time. That decision was there. They had the power under the, the decision to do it. They just, for the most part, chose not to exercise that power. 
Then came the 1970s. A big reorganization of our economy started. The stagflation of the 70s happened. High unemployment, high inflation at the same time. Um, the country started to turn right politically. Um, the labor movement was unable to uh, enact labor law reform in 1978 when Carter was president. It was a huge defeat. All of a sudden, the world was beginning to change. Globalization was really starting to happen. Container ships really started to change uh, the price of shipping. Uh, between 1965 and 1980, you started to have American workers competing with workers around the world increasingly. So as the economy started to change in these years, employers started to rethink the whole calculus that they had had about should we try to break strikes. And you can really see this starting to change in the late 70s and into the early 80s. The PATCO strike of 1981 when Ronald Reagan fired 11,000 plus air traffic controllers is I think a real important turning point because when Reagan did that, it had to do with federal workers. They were engaged in an illegal strike. It's not like the private sector. He had the power to actually fire them. But when private sector employers saw Reagan successfully break that strike, and when they considered the new economic environment that both was more competitive for them, they were less likely to want to meet their employees' demands in a strike, and also they felt the power shifting in their direction. They decided to exercise the power that the Supreme Court had given them uh, back in 1938 and to increasingly hire workers during a strike with the express idea of trying to crush the strike. Well, and I know you wrote, and you should uh, remind folks, you wrote the book on the Patco strike. Um, mm. So, but was that, I mean, Reagan just had the power to fire, I mean, he didn't need that Supreme Court decision, right? I mean, he could just No, no, he already had workers. that power. So the, the McKay decision of 1938, that only applied to private sector right. workers. Right. So. Uh, but what Reagan did, really, it was like, um, um, uh, it was a tone setter. Once he did that and employers looked at how successful he was, he kind of changed the norms. I think one of the reasons why employers refrained from trying to crush strikes in the 50s and 60s is they were kind of um, worried about how they'd be perceived, right. um, and they'd be perceived as mean and vicious, and uh, there might be a backlash against them. In the 80s, that calculus was changing, um, and so um, there was a group uh, at the Wharton School um, in, in the early 1980s that actually began to promote the idea of breaking strikes and, and doing seminars for business leaders about this is how you do it, and reminding everybody, you have the right to do this. You have a right to hire replacement workers during the strike that the Supreme Court gave you, you know, decades ago. You just haven't used. And so it was in the course of the 1980s that you really saw the McKay decision like a time bomb that had been ticking for all those years suddenly kind of explode. It changed the face of labor relations. There were a series of 
uh, private sector strikes after the PATCO strike where employers did this. They, they did it in, um, in Arizona in 1983 in a copper strike. They did it in uh, Minnesota in the Hormel strike in 1986, uh, the Greyhound strike and others. Um, all of those actions were, you know, made possible by this, uh, you know, dust, dusty Supreme Court precedent that, you know, had been on the books, uh, but that hadn't, um, hadn't been activated until that point. Well, you, you've, you've made a couple of references, but I want to I be a bit more, I want you to be a bit more explicit about this because, you know, McKay is, is legalistic. Obviously, it's a Supreme Court decision, right? right? But you're, you're talking about uh, a legal precedent uh, that may or may not be used, but then you're also talking about, you know, what people actually do. Right, right. And so I want you to, to kind of explore explore that because because I, because I'm connecting it obviously with you know the teachers That's who have right. been striking right. who don't have the right to strike right right so can you make that explicit? I think that's a great question because there's the law and then there's the context within which right. law operates and a lot of times we focus too much on the law and too little on the context in fact. Um, you could say about American labor law that pretty much it hasn't changed since 1947, since the Taft-Hartley Act. So the law has kind of remained kind of stationary uh, over more than half a century, but the context within which the law operates has radically changed. So that what didn't appear to be so debilitating in 1947 looks really debilitating in the context after the 70s. And at the same time, you might say that what this history teaches us is, is almost the reverse. Um, um, what we saw in the case of McKay is how over time context, you know, empowers, uh, you know, a precedent that had just sat there for a long time. What we see in the case of the teachers today is that the law might say one thing, but here you have a very different context. Uh, let's say in Oklahoma, uh, just recently when workers there struck. They struck in part because um, in much of Oklahoma, the schools only have enough money to stay open four days a week. <coughs> so it might be illegal to engage in a strike uh, there, but legality is one thing. Mm -hmm. The context is something else. And, you know, as has often been said about strikes in the public sector, the only really illegal strike is an unsuccessful strike. <laughs> and uh, I think teachers recently showed that. They showed that, you know, the law is one thing, but law only works, uh, you know, as a restraining force if the context reinforces it in that way. Um, and sometimes, you know, morality and, and political you know, will can override and, and even change the way law is is applied. I think there's a nice uh, piece of labor history in that same week that illustrates this uh, point about context. Uh, happens on uh, May 18th, 1912. Um, and we've talked about uh, labor history in baseball a lot in this um, in this podcast, but in this Ty Cobb, <laughs> Ty Cobb, yeah. So in this in this instance, um, and what may have been the first. Um, labor strike in baseball history. Detroit Tigers 
refused to play after Ty Cobb is suspended. Um, he was suspended for going into the stands and beating on a fan, um, <laughs> which a he didn't question. take a knee, did he? <laughs> no, he did not. Uh, the exact opposite. Um, but so uh, the 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 strike, which uh, I don't know if they termed it a strike then, was ultimately successful because the team's owner uh, made the dubious decision to try to replace the Tigers team um, with a local college team, and and the college team's pitcher gave up. Uh, 24 runs, which is not a good way to run a baseball uh, a business. some sort of record. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, so yeah, I mean, that's an example of when context, the law didn't matter in that situation. If there was any um, applicable law, uh, you could not replace those baseball um, professionals with um, a college team. Similarly, you can't replace teachers when you're already unable to fill half of your teaching positions in school districts. So that is a that is a really true point. And what we've seen in West Virginia and uh, Kentucky um, and Oklahoma and Arizona is that you know teachers have power um, in the context of the crisis that's emerged, and they've they've decided to seize that power to try to make reforms that not only make their jobs more doable, but you know, rescue the schools from from the crisis they're in. Hi, this is Lane Wyndham from Georgetown University in Washington, D.C. On May 15, 1917, the Library Employees Union was founded in New York City, the first union of public library workers in the United States. A major focus of the union was the inferior status of women library workers and their low salaries. Next up, Patrick Dixon interviews historian Joe Hauer on AFSCME's longtime president, Jerry Wirth, born on May 18, 1919. Joe discusses how Wirth built AFSCME into one of the largest and fastest-growing unions in the American labor movement, including the story of when 5,000 New York City Public Works employees marched on legendary New York City power broker Bob Moses. Hauer also discusses how the impending Supreme Court Janus decision could spur a return to militancy in public sector unions and spark a productive creative moment for collective bargaining across the entire labor movement. Hauer is visiting assistant professor of history at Southwestern University in Georgetown, Texas, and the author of Revolution in Government, Jerry Wirth, the Rise of AFSCME, and the Fate of American Liberalism, 1919-1981. All right, welcome to Labor History Today. Thanks for joining us, Joe. Thanks so much for having me. Now, Worth's early life in New York City is kind of unusual, right? How does, uh, how does his upbringing affect, his, uh, affect the sort of labor leader that he becomes? Yeah, it's a fascinating story, right? Jerry Worth is sort of born into this upper blue collar, lower middle class immigrant family, but by his own account is a sort of unusual proletarian. Um, his father's a small scale textile merchant, his mother's a dressmaker, but he's you know, basically a sort of lower middle class kid during the depression. He suffers, uh, he's stricken by polio at the age of four. He spends a good chunk of his sort of early childhood in a wheelchair, uh, which I think basically serves to both sort of sharpen his mind. All he does is read. He reads, he reads, he reads. It also sort of sharpens his temper. As civil rights leader James Farmer says, who works for Worf a couple of different times, you know, to understand him, you have to 
uh, know what it's like to be an undersized polio crippled kid in a wheelchair uh, growing up on the Lower East Side, struggling to survive. He enters the union movement and then by 1947, he joins AFSCME. So what sort of union is AFSCME in 1947? So AFSCME is uh, far from the organization it is today. I mean, it's, uh, it's founded in the mid 1930s as this white collar, largely professional organization. The founding president, a guy named Arnold Zander, has a PhD from Madison. Um, and it's really devoted to uh, this agenda of civil service unionism. Basically, it wants to uh, expand, protect uh, the merit system in public employment. And that's largely its agenda. It's not uh, concerned all that much with what we think of as sort of bread and butter issues, working condition, wages, hours, and so on. Um, and WORF comes into the union at a time when that's starting to change, right? We've got the sort of post-World War II strike wave of public workers. Um, this is sort of the moment when he comes in. He comes out of the socialist movement. He comes into AFSCME basically through those contacts. He's basically hired on this sort of uh, quixotic uh, effort to organize the, the sort of transportation workers in New York City to put Mike Quill and the TWU out of business, which he finds to be absurd. Um, but that really shapes the sort of his approach to the union. I and mean, he sort of ends up uh, organizing largely a blue collar uh, working class in the city first. Um, the union does organize white collar workers, but you know, through the 40s and the 50s into the early 60s, the base of District Council 37, that's the, the council he's in charge of in New York, uh, are really like parks department employees. And uh, to a certain extent, you know, street sanitation workers. I and mean, that's sort of the base. That's where he feels most comfortable. Um, and that also gives sort of his vision of the public sector union movement, like a particular uh, bent, right? One that's somewhat different from the sort of founding generation. And I understand he has a lot of friction with Zander, ultimately challenges him and unseats him. Yeah, so, so he sort of, you know, Worth, I think, uh, represents a sort of new generation of public sector uh, unionists. He's not alone in this regard. And in fact, a lot of the things that New York City, that he sort of pioneers in New York City, uh, are reflected in sort of smaller scale, sort of less dramatically all throughout uh, the country, but particularly in these sort of large cities in the Midwest uh, and along the sort of Atlantic seaboard, right? And so what you see by the late 50s and by the early 60s are growing tensions between this sort of old line civil service agenda and this sort of new generation of uh, folks who were devoted to a much more traditional brand of, of unionism. Um, and so Wirth challenges Xander uh, in 1962. He narrowly loses. Uh, and this sets off basically a two-year campaign uh, within the organization to sort of figure out what the future direction of this movement's going to be. And this culminates in 1964 uh, when, when Wirth unseats the founding union president by 21 votes out of several thousand casts in this incredibly sort of close-cut uh, campaign. And once Wirth is in charge, I understand AFSCME becomes an important part of the civil rights movement. Yeah, and this is for Wirth, it's sort of coming full circle, right? So he had grown up uh, on the left, in the left in New York City. Um, he was involved in the Congress of Racial Equality in, in Brooklyn, uh, you know, as a young man, um, he sort of moves from the sort of socialist movement into both the labor and the civil rights movement during the 50s. Uh, you know, he's sitting in A. Philip Randolph's office with Norman Thomas uh, when they learn of the start of the Montgomery bus boycott. He goes on to help raise money with uh, Ella Baker and Bayard Rustin. 
to support the sort of Southern civil rights strategy, um, the Southern civil rights campaign. Uh, but AFSCME as an organization uh, in the 50s and 60s has at best a sort of mixed uh, record when it comes to sort of civil rights issues. Um, and again, part of what's changing is the sort of blue collar demographics sort of bringing in uh, you know, more and more blue collar workers also means the union is organizing more and more, say, sanitation workers uh, who become the sort of militant vanguard of the public sector labor movement in the 60s. And they are, especially in the South, but throughout the country, overwhelmingly African-American men. Uh, and so this sort of deepens what was sort of a personal commitment to civil rights and gives it sort of a strong institutional bent. Um, and that's there in the early 60s, that's mid there in the mid 60s, but of course it becomes much more pronounced, much more prominent, um, and much more a crucial part of the union's identity after the Memphis sanitation strike of 1968. The Memphis sanitation strike, it seems, has become almost a sort of signature moment for AFSCME in this period, and everyone is, everyone's very familiar with it, and we've talked about it on this show multiple times, I think, but um, uh, there are many strikes in other cities, mm -hmm. I understand. Uh, can, can, you, can you give us an example of uh, perhaps a less well-known highlight of Worth's tenure? You know, what I like, I, I actually like to go back to the sort, of, uh, the sort of 50s in New York at a time when, you know, legal collective bargaining is not yet uh, viewed as legitimate. Um, and at this sort of early moment, a lot of the sort of workplace militancy, you know, doesn't look like a traditional strike. So, for instance, in the mid-50s, under some tremendous amount of public pressure, uh, Mayor Robert F. Wagner issues a sort of interim executive order that sort of sets up the beginnings of a collective bargaining system. But Worth and other early public sector unions find themselves deeply frustrated uh, by the sort of city's unwillingness to actually negotiate, right? And one of the things that happens is that, you know, Worth and Council 37, which at the time is still relatively small, is sort of locked out of the sort of backroom politics that had sort of previously defined uh, public sector labor relations in the city. Uh, they capitalize on public relations. They capitalize on mass demonstrations. They sort of seize on those tactics and use those to pressure uh, the Wagner administration. So for instance, uh, in 1955, as I mentioned, the Parks Department is a sort of crucial uh, sort of bedrock for Council 37, but they can't get a meeting with the head of the Parks Department, Robert Moses, this legendary uh, sort of fixture of New York politics. Uh, and so they try for months and months to get a meeting uh, with, with, with Moses and, and fail. And so basically in November of, of 55, what uh, Worf and company do is they sort of arrange to have like 2,000 Parks Department employees not show up to their regular uh, workplace, but rather to report to the arsenal, the, the headquarters of the Parks Department in Central Park. And uh, it's not a formal strike. I mean, they're just sort of uh, showing up to the, their headquarters, but um, they begin picketing. They picket the facility, they, they imprison themselves in steel cages with signs painted Bob Moses' zoo. Uh, they cast the uh, public worker as a kind of, a sort of exotic species that resembles the normal American worker, but no bargaining, no grievance machinery, no dignity on the job. Um, the problem is that Moses isn't there. He never works out of the arsenal. He's on Randall's Island, the Triborough Authority. So, uh, you know, Worth and others sort of find themselves sort of sitting outside the arsenal and uh, without the sort of target of their own sort of campaign. So they begin a march. They march four miles down Fifth Avenue to City Hall, uh, sort of reorienting their, their protest for Robert Moses to Robert Wagner, the mayor, uh, chanting, you know, which Bob is boss and company. 
Um, and this emerges as a crucial moment. Like eventually the public pressure, basically, you know, young liberal reporters like A.H. Raskin sort of seize on this and they're already skeptical of Robert Moses' schemes and they begin to put pressure on Wagner. Um, and, and this ends up helping the union to win a meeting with Bob Moses. Uh, Worf calls in Arnold Zander from Wisconsin, asks him to sit on the meeting, says it's gonna be this transformative moment in the union's history. Um, Worf even buys a new suit, he says. It's one thing to meet with the, the mayor, but nobody um, but God meets with Robert, you know, meets with Moses. Um, and this is an important moment. This sort of is indicative of how the public sector labor movement works in these early years. Uh, it's a combination of you know, mass demonstrations, creative public relations, timely political pressure, but mostly the sort of daily grind of day-to-day -day organizing, right? Um, and that's how the unions built in the 50s in New York. Uh, and and that, that sort of helps to shape its character later. And does this division, if you like, between a sort of old guard of perhaps civil servants and white collar workers and this new blue collar workforce organized by Worth, does this division fade over time as public sector unions are increasingly under assault? I think it does. I mean, I think that you sort of see a, a, a trajectory of the union where it begins with this white collar base, takes on an increasingly blue collar orientation in the 60s and the 70s that, that both is crucial to its tremendous growth, but also helps to sort of um, elevate issues like civil rights uh, to the forefront of the agenda. But by the 70s, what you see is a, a sort of shift back towards uh, sort of concerted effort to organize clerical workers, many of whom are, are women, and this helps to put issues like pay equity uh, on the agenda. So by the time you get to the late 70s, AFSCME is, you know, the fastest growing, one of the largest unions in the American labor movement. It's this incredible sort of amalgam of, uh, you know, civil engineers and the sort of lowest paid, you know, sanitation workers. Um, and, and sort of wrangling all of that, managing all of that's a really interesting intellectual and, and logistical project. Uh, for union leaders. Um, in some ways, the attacks on public sector unions in the 70s uh, help to give sort of coherence uh, to a sort of an emerging sort of, uh, you know, shared sort of identity as public workers uh, among a workforce that otherwise on the face seems to share relatively little. Asmi is facing Janice now, which is just on the horizon. Um... I don't think there's one unifying strategy across the labor movement as to how to respond to this. Where do you stand? What do you think needs to be the approach to this impending court case? Well, I, I think there's a few things. I mean, I think that um, a great deal of what many of the unions have already begun doing in terms of re-engaging their you know, agency fee paying members uh, is important. Um, but I think it's also worth you know, remembering that the sort of public sector labor movement has its origins and was built uh, at a time and in a place when, you know, formal legalized collective bargaining wasn't there, right? From the Boston police strike 1919 on really through the late 50s, early 60s, uh, there's no sort of clear sort of legal structure for collective bargaining. Uh, the union sort of carves out a place in the American labor movement and American society prior to that. And if it was done then, then it, then it certainly could be done um, in a sort of post-Janus world um, in which, uh, you know, unions like AFSCME are going to have to grapple with uh, the sort of financial uh, implications of, um, you know, the absence of, of, of sort of fair share 
uh, fees. But, but on the other hand, it also sort of invites uh, a level of creativity in terms of engaging community partners, in terms of engaging other social movements, in terms of um, perhaps sort of returning to an era of sort of mass demonstrations, be they strikes or otherwise. And, uh, you know, in that sense, it could be a really sort of creative, uh, creative moment, a really productive creative moment uh, for collective bargaining, not just in the public sector, but in the private sector as well. Let's hope so. This has been fascinating. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks, Patrick. Hi, this is David from Tacoma Park, Maryland. Hello, this is Saul Schneiderman calling. On May 19, 1920, a shootout took place in Matewan, West Virginia, between striking union miners led by Police Chief Sid Hatfield and coal company agents. Ten died, including seven agents. And this was known as the Matewan Massacre. It was a good guy versus bad guy story. And the good guy was Sid Hatfield, who was a sheriff of the town and a friend of the United Mine Workers of America and the striking miners. And the bad guy was Albert Feltz, the head of the Baldwin Feltz Detective Agency, who had come to town to try to evict uh, some of the miners and their families. People who know the Matewan Massacre probably know about it through the great John Sayles movie, Matewan, which is a terrific film that all of the listeners for Labor History Today should um, view and own. And you can buy it for $15, by the way, the DVD from the Labor Heritage Foundation. Besides being a great film by a great director, John Sayles, Mason Daring did the music uh, in the film. It's great music, working class music, and it includes Hazel Dickens, who sings the song, Fire in the Hole. You can tell him in the country, tell him in the town. The miners down in Mingle, their shovels down. We won't pull another pillow out another ton. Or lift another finger till the union we have won. Stand up, boys, let the bosses know. Turn your buckets over, turn your lanterns low. There's fire in her hearts and fire in her soul. But there ain't gonna be no fire in the hole. One massacre. My labor sewing. We face some regularities with solidarity, collectively bargaining to gain some clarity. We're living in poverty, it's really bothering me. We're going to the table to end this policy. United we stand, divided. Labor History Today is produced by the Metro Washington Council's Union City Radio and the Kalmanovitz Initiative for Labor and the Working Poor at Georgetown University. Labor history sources include Today in Labor History from Union Communication Services. 
Music this week included We Are the Union by Jaywalk Grimm and Shatoya Thomas Flemings and Fire in the Hole by Hazel Dickens. We have links to the complete songs and videos on the Labor History Today podcast page. As always, we hope you've enjoyed this week's edition of Labor History Today. Please spread the word by liking us on your favorite podcast app. This has been Chris Garlock. Thanks for listening. Keep making history and see you next week. My respect, my dignity, we are the union. Despite harassment and intimidation, they heard you in Brooklyn.